From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Webster's Dictionary defines hope as desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. Today's Blue Sky guest sees developing and maintaining a hopeful mindset as key to our well-being and to preventing some of the worst mental health disorders and heading off their most tragic potential outcomes. She believes this so strongly that she's written a book about it and has made Fostering Hope her life's work. Catherine Getsky is Chief Hope Officer of the Shine Hope Company and author of The Biggest Little Book on Hope. She's also the creator of award-winning Hopeful Minds, Hopeful Cities, and Hopeful Mindsets. Prior to her current work, in 2004, Catherine launched Mood Lights, a brand that achieved over $35 million in retail sales and ran the first cause marketing campaign for mental health. She was recently appointed to represent the World Federation for Mental Health at the United Nations, representing the nearly 1 billion people around the world with mental health disorders. Catherine is a global mental health ambassador, overcoming her own battles with depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, and addictions through therapy, medication, lifestyle changes, support, and learning how to hope. In this Blue Sky episode, we'll learn more about Catherine's personal story, her path towards hopefulness, and her firmly held belief that hope is both measurable and teachable. And speaking of hope, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine Getsky as much as I did. Before we begin this conversation, I'd like to caution that this episode contains references to severe depression and suicide that may be particularly difficult for some of our listeners. And we encourage you to call or text 988 if you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideations. Catherine Getsky, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, you have a remarkable life story, and we'll get to explore that quite a bit as we go along. But what I'd like to start out with is you have so many things going on. What's your big focus today, and what are you hoping to accomplish in the world? Yeah, thanks. Well, I do have quite a bit going on. I'm really focused right now on the Shine Hope Company teaching workplaces. Uh, We have a college program, the How to Hope. So really skills to activate hope in their lives. We use Shine as the framework and, you know, using the company to fund all of the work I want to do with kids around the world. So um, that's my focus and passion. So I read your book, The Biggest Little Book on Hope, and I recommend it to everybody listening. Um, You have quite the personal story. And I'd like to get into that if you're, you've been very comfortable sharing it. It's not all easy things to talk about, but you lost your father uh, when you were 18, 19 years old. Um, he took his own life. And I read in your book, the last note he sent to you or left for you was, I hope and pray that you will never experience the pain and unhappiness 
the deep regret that I feel all the time. And my sense is that both that loss and that message has really motivated your life. Could you describe that to us? Yeah, absolutely. It was on a Valentine's Day card. You know, he took his life uh, later in February. And, you know, he just, he struggled a lot. He did, and he didn't know how to manage it. So I would say hopelessness killed him really fundamentally. It was his despair. And then his helplessness, his helplessness about doing anything about that despair. And yeah, I mean, super, super traumatic on me. He was really my greatest hero. And I spent so much of my life really trying to help him and help him with his struggles. And so, you know, that by far has driven a lot of the work that I do in the world today, you know, working to ensure that people know how to manage their despair and they know how to get from helplessness back to action, kind of because life is really full of all kinds of challenges and, and it's how we navigate those challenges that predicts, you know, if we stick around and how well we do through them. But you didn't, you weren't able to go straight from that to a more hopeful life. You had your own oh, no. experience. So, <laughs> no, no, no. so help yeah. us understand how you went from losing your dad to the, your own struggles to now charting this path that you're on now. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, you know, my struggles started young. I mean, my dad was, he was amazing on the one hand, and he also struggled a lot. He had a really aggressive temper, um, explosive. And so, I mean, I probably turned to addiction when I was 10 years old, you know, started drinking, smoking, just doing so many things. I had so many unhealthy coping mechanisms that I used. And so, you know, and then really traumatized by the loss of my dad, because I tried so hard to help him and struggled so much myself. And then in my early 20s, um, I had my own suicide attempt. So, you know, took a ton of pills and was very intox intoxicated. And, um, you know, it wasn't anything major that had happened. It was some kind of slight, probably of some guy. And just triggered what I would call kind of this brain attack, you know, this just need to escape. And then you put all these, you add all these substances in your body and, you know, you have an inability to access any kind of rational thinking. And so, you know, it took me probably 10 years before I even told anyone that I had my own suicide attempt because I was so ashamed of it and so shocked that I had done it. I thought it was, you know, I'd always thought, how did my, how could my dad do that to me? And came to realize, you know, it's not something you it, you do to someone. You don't know what you don't know until you kind of know. Um, and so it took me a long time. And when I, by the time I started my own company and brand, and and at that time started a nonprofit for mental health as well, I realized I needed to get sober and needed to get really serious about my own mental health if I wanted to be you know, speaking about the importance of mental health to youth and to kids around the world. And so that's really, I think, when I set out on my journey to get really serious about my own suicide prevention. So, so as you look back on it, you're quoted in the book, you write, I was unwilling to become another statistic. Where did that come from? Because you could have, you could have kept going down that more negative path. Where did, where did that spark and was it hope? I mean, where did that come from for you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate in that I started, I, I attended um, this Global Mental Health Movement Summit, and I spoke at this conference of Vikram Patel's many years ago and was invited to the World Health Organization's MHGAP Forum. So I started learning from all of these brilliant scientists in the field of mental health, and I was learning in these statistics that 
my risk of suicide was so high. You know, my previous attempt, my struggle with addiction, my family history of suicide, anytime you go through major life events, kind of all of these things elevate your risk for suicide. And I was just hearing this over and over again. And I just sat in those conferences thinking, yeah, I don't want that for myself. You know, I need to find another way. Catherine's story about that Valentine's card from her father is heartbreaking. And to see how far she's come from the age of 10, when she first began abusing substances to where she is today, is pretty amazing. Understanding that it was both helplessness and hopelessness that led her father to take his own life was a turning point for Catherine. And most helpfully, she was able to shift her mindset from blaming her dad for her problems to working on herself. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Catherine to elaborate some more on why she chose to focus her work so squarely on the concept of hope. You could have focused only on addiction or only on, say, uh, depression mitigation, but somehow you latched onto this concept of hope. Can you describe why, how, and and where that's taken you? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I you know, started in mental health maybe 20 years ago when I started the nonprofit. And then it was about 10 years ago, I said, I've got to really figure out what causes suicide. We were talking about suicide prevention as interventions at time of crisis. So 800 numbers restricting access to means. And I thought, you know, that's not going to save my life. I'm not going to call an 800 number. I just know that about myself. And so started digging into the research and study after study after study, and I have a love of research and and passion and and have been trained in it, you know, hopelessness came up as the single consistent predictor. And I thought, well, if hopelessness is the cause of suicide, then you solve, you end suicide by understanding hopelessness and how to manage it. And so to me, that was a major light bulb moment. And it was a really gift to me from the universe because once we understand the cause, then it's just, okay, how do I move out of hopelessness? You know, it's the primary symptom of anxiety and depression. How do I kind of proactively manage my hopelessness so I don't, you know, develop anxiety disorders, so I don't go into a major depression? And we now know that hope is a protective factor for those. So the more hopeful you are, the less likely you are to have anxiety and depression. And you know, what I found was there's a scale for hope. You can measure how hopeful you are. So I thought we need to figure out how to teach people how to get from hopelessness to hope. And and so I, I know from your book and, and what I've researched, you've tackled this in a bunch of different ways, different levels, different age groups, hopeful kids, hopeful cities. Where Where do you think the best opportunities are? Because one thing that even since your book came out that's getting a lot of publicity, rightly so, is the, is the mental health challenges for young people today. The, the statistics are staggering. So, I, so I'd like to know sort of as you think about it, where are the best opportunities to really move the needle? Is it young people? Is it parents who can model for young people? Where, where are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the statistics are horrific. And, you know, hopelessness is learned. So it's often a consequence of oppression and discrimination is a study I read. So it's learned. And, you know, 57% of teen girls, for example, are in persistent states of hopelessness. And, you know, we know the outcomes of that, the addiction, the violence, the self-harm. 
you know, suicide. And so, yeah, I mean, teens are a super important area for us to impact. You know, I started with a K through K through kind of six. I mean, they use it for all ages, hopeful minds, because you can have such a difference if you intervene like seven to 10 year olds, because anxiety and depressive symptoms start appearing around 10, 11. And so if you can kind of you know, get in that age group and teach them. It, it's powerful because if you can catch it early, you can really minimize the impact and, and the long-term impact. So, I mean, that to me was my priority starting out. And we now have a free, no-cost evidence-based program that does that. Um, we're working on a teen program. So we took, we workshopped with a group of teens and they taught us how to, how to they can teach each other about hope. So it's it's a different method and model for how we'll activate teens around it. And I believe that as teens start using this program, they'll start teaching us about hope. I mean, I, I learned so much from youth and I really believe that they're, they'll teach us a lot. And are these programs done through schools or, or groups outside of schools? How do you reach people? Can be used any which way, you know, it was all, it took me a lot longer to create the programming and a lot more of my, you know, financial and, and mental resources that I'd anticipated. But I was really committed to having it no cost and evidence-based were kind of my two. So I didn't go with a publisher. We've self-published and we make it available so that we can provide them free to anyone and they use them in, in schools and after school programs. I mean, there are colleges that use it They for the for our Hopeful Minds program because we're the first to kind of really get out this programming at no cost, but churches can use them. Um, police, we have police teaching these in housing um, communities. It's really anyway, you know, our teen program, we would love it all first year high school students to go through this program and they'll go through it with each other. They'll have a teacher to kind of be the facilitator, but they're really going to be teaching each other about hope and that's how they wanted it developed. And so we stayed really committed to that. Um, I mean, through my company, you know, it, it was virtually impossible for me to get people to fund my idea that we needed to teach hope. You know, it's we're not a prevention focused society, so we're very reactive. We can put, you know, a bunch of money into a crisis center, but we don't want to deal with it way upstream. And I was really committed to that. So now the workplace will be done through the company. My college course is done through my company. And, and you know, we think they're you know, workplaces are high in hopelessness. College students have some of the highest suicide, you know, increases in suicide rates. So it's all of these populations to me are very important. Um, and we'll be focusing on the company now to help fund and fuel the work, the continued work we want to do with kids and, and the ability to keep it free. Um, you know, a lot of the low resource communities can't afford it. And so, you know, they can print it on their computers or do it, you know, however they want to do it. So. So when you think about going upstream and getting to the causes, when we see, if you look at the charts and the rates of depression and anxiety and suicide in younger people, it sure does seem to overlap with the advent of smartphones and possibly social media. And the Surgeon General has just called out social media. Is this part of what you work on with 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 kids and and frankly adults? I mean, we're all swimming in a lot of. It's part of the reason I'm doing the work I'm doing is trying to break through this doom scrolling and and swirl of negativity that we're all 
swimming in. Um, is that part of what you're trying to get after and, and help kids understand how best to use these tools that can be great, but they can also be very detrimental? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to be educated about it, to be educated on what the positives and negatives of social media overall, and just kind of like present what the research says, not dictating to them what they need to do, but presenting to them the research and kind of allowing them to make their own decisions around that. Um, And, you know, when you, I think we should have black box warnings on phones. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I don't think it was anything intentional, but when you think about the phone and the developing brain of the child, it's basically giving us intermittent reinforcement, which is the most addictive way to train our brains. And so you basically are training the brain to become addicted to things. And when you're addicted to things, it becomes very easy to become anxious or depressed. So I think we've kind of trained our younger generation to addiction, and it's just a matter of kind of untraining and retraining our brains. And thanks to neuroplasticity, we can. So it's about, you know, learning to use it in healthy ways and learning to put safeguards on them so it doesn't train us to that. So we're not constantly getting random notifications, um, you know, that kind of reinforces our checking the phones that, you know, understanding what negative bias is and why the news uses that as a way to get us to read their stuff and why that's unhealthy, why it's not, you know, why it's not good for the brain to constantly be scanning for negative articles and feeding our, <laughs> you know, with the information. So it's really be about educating around it. I think teens are really smart and, and as opposed to telling them what to do or what they need to be doing, which we found through our focus groups, we brought up the word social media and they shut us off immediately because they thought we were just going to start kind of lecturing them about what they needed to be doing and not doing. But I know you're smart enough to make your own decisions. Let's just like look at, let's just dig into the studies around it and see It's interesting to hear Catherine's belief that like so many other aspects of our mental outlook, hopelessness is learned. And it's striking to think about how early this mindset can be instilled. She's right that we're not, as she says, a prevention-based society. And it's encouraging to know that Shining Hope is targeting K through sixth graders. After all, Catherine's own addictions began when she was 10. And we know that the earlier a person begins abusing substances, the harder it is to break these patterns later in life. Now back to my Blue Sky conversation with Katherine Getsky. Help us understand how do you and your company, how do you think about teaching people hope? Yeah, so, I mean, to me, the fact that there's even a hope scale was shocking to me when I started digging into the work. So first we measure people's hope. There's a children's hope scale and an adult's hope scale. And it gives you kind of an idea from a scientific standpoint where you are. Um, And then we use shine as the framework. So I kind of reverse engineered hopelessness. And when you look at hopelessness is despair. So it's emotional, emotional despair, and then motivational helplessness. I looked at, okay, how do you get out of emotional despair? And the first thing is, so we, we shine as the framework. And the first thing is stress skills. So how do you identify and manage your stress response, which is basically despair? which is your sadness, your anger, your fear, these kind of emotions that come up that can really dictate your life if you don't learn 
kind of how to honor your emotions. It's not about running from them. It's about learning what they're telling you and experiencing them, having the physical sensation of them. I spent so much of my time running from them. I didn't want to be sad, didn't want to be angry, you know, all of these things, but that's just part of what makes us human. And so we use stress skills, we teach stress skills and, and kind of the biology of what happens when we're triggered by things. So, and we're, you know, we're in our downstairs brain and why we can't problem solve and be creative and collaborative when we're in our stress response and what happens with the hormones and the adrenaline and the cortisol. And so we kind of take, take people through that. And then the second is H, which is happiness habits. So how we cultivate these long-term healthy habits that help us stay in our upstairs brain, like nutrition and why sleep is so important. And you know, we often stop doing these things when we're in a stressful times, like we stop exercising, we start eating poorly, we do all of these things. And that's actually when the most critical time when we need to do it, because we have to kind of counteract these stress guilt or these stress hormones. Yes. So you said a lot there that I think is important. And, and one is um, this idea that, you know, how do you handle when things aren't just so? And I think one of the challenges for, for people today, again, back to imaging and everything, is just we're supposed to be happy all the time. We're supposed to look great. We're supposed to – because people, as they say, you go on social media and you see, you know, the, the best outsides of people, not, you know, what's going on inside. And just explain to kids – I think you, you wrote this in your book uh, that you're seeking progress, not perfection. And I think that's a really good way to think about it because this is life. It's not always supposed to be happy. You're not always supposed to wake out of bed, well, get out of bed and look great or have a six pack abs when you're 11 or ever, you know, but this is, this is the expectation. And how do we get through that? Yeah, I know. And that's, and that's so hard and, and it's, and it's true or not. And that's what, you know, makes life life are those experiences. I feel too, like we're over-diagnosing kids now. Kids are sad and they're like, oh, I'm depressed. And it's like, sadness is like, of course you'd be sad. Like, of course, and honor that sadness and feel that. Or, you know, you, you become afraid and you're like, oh, I have an anxiety disorder. I mean, it's like we're, you know, it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Like, just, I mean, emotions are a part of the experience of life. And so I think that too is a in the mental health space, at least, I think we've got to be really careful about the messaging we're giving around this, too, that, you know, just because you're sad doesn't mean you have depression or you're depressed and just because you're afraid or, you know, so, yeah, but I mean, I think it, it is. It's it's so key to learn how to embrace these. And if you want to cry, you should be able to cry. And if you want to, like, punch something, as long as it's not a person, like, you know, learn how to get those those emotions out in healthy ways as opposed to repressing them or dealing with them in really unhealthy ways, which is what we do if we can't express them. You know, like violence can release endorphins. I mean, a lot of people don't even realize this, but when kids are in despair, violence can feel better in the moment. And, you know, we've got to teach them the science of this, the biology of this, but why that's not a great long-term kind of decision and kind of healthier ways to activate these endorphins and then I think provide opportunities for them to do it. One of, one of the things that's also been identified as approaching epidemic, I suppose, is loneliness. And I'm wondering if that plays into your work on hope. You know, the Surgeon General, I think, just identified that as well. And these 
technologies that should be connecting us, and in some ways they do, they also sort of drive us back into our homes. And then we went through two, three years of pandemic. Is loneliness something that that shows up in your research and in your training? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, it still comes down to the hopelessness. So the, the eye of shine is inspired action. So we do a lot of goal setting, how to overcome obstacles to goals, why you need to re-goal. Um, but the N is nourishing networks. So how to really create strong bi-directional networks and why networks are so important to hope. And I think that, you know, a lot of times we can't connect to people because we feel a hopelessness about connecting. So we feel that despair and we feel helpless to do anything. And so really working on our emotional despair and then getting from helplessness to action around making friends, around connect, finding trusted, you know, advisors or adults is really, I mean, I think that that's kind of what we teach on how to do that. I mean, I look at my own life and, you know, when I lost my dad, I was stuck in hopelessness because I wanted my dad there and I couldn't have my dad there. And I came, you know, I was so fixated on that. And, and really what I wanted was the experiences and the emotions and the feelings I got with my dad. So the connection, the mentoring, the financial business sense. And so I had to work to create new relations in, in my life that kind of helped foster those feelings. But it was really, I mean, fundamentally a hopelessness for me around having my dad that led to that kind of loneliness around that. And so I needed to learn to address my hopelessness on it. So, I mean, both very for sure related, um, but you can use your hope skills to help create better relationships and stronger relationships. I'm glad Catherine was determined to get all the way through her SHINE acronym after here's Truly kept butting in and almost pulled her off track. To review, the letters stand for S, stress skills, H, happiness habits, I, inspired action, N, nourishing networks, and E, eliminating challenges to hope. I think it's really important to think about what Catherine says about life's setbacks and challenges. These are the things that, as she puts it, makes life life. We will not be happy, calm, content, fulfilled all the time. It's just not going to happen. Instead, what's important is how we deal with these challenges. And back to the N and shine, nourishing networks and avoiding the scourge of loneliness is key. You've described, you know, a lot of the literature we read about these days are about grit and perseverance and resilience, all very important things. But you, you argue that hope is an even more powerful predictor of fulfillment, success, safety than any of those things. But again, we just don't talk about it as much. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hope is thought as a very soft, ethereal thing. It's often just connected to religion and that it's thought of as a wish and just, you know, um, not a pragmatic kind of solution. There's a famous book, Hope is Not a Strategy. <laughs> so they're so hot. You know, and yet the research is so clear, like, and I'm from my personal experience, like when I don't have hope, I don't have anything. I can't get to grit. I can't get to resilience. I can't get to optimism when I'm in a hopeless, 
you know, or a less than hopeful state, it's, you can't get any of that. I mean, I had my company, the mood factory that's focused on sensory engagement and moods and happiness. And, but I'm like, I've got to first really understand hope at a very deep fundamental before I can get to happiness, you know? And, and so, yeah, I believe it's foundational. And then I think once you get on the hope track and like, once you start being more, then you, then you have access to all of those other things and yet it's hard to get there without hope. And you also uh, identified Carol Dweck and her work on uh, defining growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And I, I've studied this a little bit, and I'm a big believer in the growth mindset. Can you describe that and, and the role it plays in the work that you do, having a growth mindset? Yeah, for sure. Well, I've kind of created our own, so we're focusing on hope, hopeful mindsets. So like taking it, I think just to me, a step further or a different twist on it, I think, I mean, mindset is so important and the ability that the idea of self-efficacy. So, but to me, a hopeful mindset is, you know, like we created a 10 week college course on hopeful mindsets. That's both a video course with experts and then recent college graduates. But anytime you go through a major life transition, your hopelessness goes up. So, and your likelihood of anxiety and depression go up and it's because we don't really know how to navigate those things, but if we can learn how to navigate them before we need the skills or learn examples of how other people navigate them, we can cultivate hopeful mindsets. And I think to me, it's so critical for anything we face, whether it's a cancer diagnosis, you know, a loss of a loved one, um, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, going into college, becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, you think you think about it, hopelessness is really just despair and helplessness. And when you have a challenge, you're going to feel a momentary hopelessness, you know, and as an entrepreneur, when 95% of businesses <laughs> fail, I think, you know, the, so it's so many challenges. And so how do you maintain hopeful mindsets throughout that and stay in a positive place where, again, you can problem solve, be creative and all of that. You know, the last, and we use the shine framework in that. And the last of the letters is the E, which is eliminating challenges to hope, which are our thought patterns that really get in the way. So those are the things like rumination, internalizing failure, which is a big thing with kids. You know, that's a number, like top causes of suicide and kids are failing at grades, they internalize that failure, um, failing at relationships, they internalize that failure. And, and so really how learning how to de-identify with those failures and um, look at processes instead of I am a failure. Also negative bias, uh, trying to control things outside of our control, which I wish that, you know, if I'd been able to teach one thing before COVID, it was like really, <laughs> we focused so much on everything we couldn't control and we got so upset about it. And it's no wonder that so many people developed anxiety or depressive disorders because, you know, when you do that, when you focus on everything you can't control and, and you ruminate and, you know, you become in despair and you feel helpless. And that's, again, the two kind of ingredients of hopelessness. So you, you mentioned transitions and, and, uh, and going to college. And that's another one, right, where there's it's a big deal leaving home. And especially I think today we're very attached to our home and our parents and we stay in touch and all that. And again, you you know, when when I went to college, I I'd go to college and I go to college and I would meet new people and I would maybe see my high school friends at Thanksgiving. 
now you go to college. And by the way, that process has gotten so intense and people just lose their minds over the whole thing. You get in and now life's supposed to be great and you have a bad day and you settle down to social media and you see all your friends at the other schools having the best time ever because that's what they, right? So this, again, this, this expectation that things are always going to be good, that transitions are always going to make things better, sets an unrealistic expectation, I think, which can really send you off into a spiral. Is that a fair way to describe it? Oh, yeah, it's a perfect way to describe it. Absolutely. And, you know, so I absolutely. And so I think just the becoming aware of all of these things and knowing that they're happening and being taught, you know, that this is what happens. And these are ways you can kind of counteract that. So to me, it's so skills based and it's learning, you know, that these posts aren't you know, a true reality of everyone's experience that the emotional part of college is very real for everyone. And what we're finding in the course when they they develop really strong bonds, they do groups and we have workbooks they go through, they have half an hour videos and then they work among themselves and speak among themselves and deal with the realities of college and everyone's pretty much experiencing it's stress on different levels for different reasons. Change, as we know, is a fact of life. And hopelessness, Catherine says, tends to spike during times of transition. With a growth mindset, we can understand that these feelings are normal and can be addressed by focused attention and effort. And frequent listeners will know that I tend to harp on social media as a mixed bag when it comes to our well-being. But I really do believe that when we're in a tough spot, like a difficult transition, It's really not helpful to go online and see what appears to be nothing but bliss on the faces of our friends and contacts. I think it's helpful to remember that while we're struggling with our insides, online content is a presentation of people's best outsides, often exaggerated, misleading, and frankly, not very helpful when you're trying to pull yourself out of a hole. Now back to our conversation and some thoughts on the universal experience of grief. You mentioned also, and you personally have dealt with with crushing grief, losing your dad the way you did, when you did, and you make a distinction in your book between grief and attachment, and I thought that was really interesting. Could you elaborate on that? Because all of us, if we haven't already, we're going to lose loved ones. It's a very big deal, um, and and grief can can lead to hopelessness. So can you talk about grief versus attachment and what you've learned about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean... You know, unfortunately, losing people are is, you know, a part of life. And I was so attached to my dad, um, you know, in ways that weren't, you know, healthy in many ways, too. But I mean, grief is a natural. It's also a natural part of life. And like grieving over someone, I think, is an important process. And how we do that is very individual and making sure we all have support um, and do it, I think, again, in ways that are healthy. I had a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms. I dealt with grief in a lot of unhealthy ways. Um, But attaching to people, again, it's like it, it can leave us in despair and helplessness because we want them there, you know, and when someone passes you know, our attachment to them being there still for us is just going to lead us into a depression, no doubt. And so it's really learning how um, how to create kind of new connections, you know, and, and not necessarily attachments, I think, is um, a way I, I would 
talk about it or speak to it now. Um, because when you attach too closely to things and you lose them, it's super, super hard. And so how can we, you know, navigate in really, I mean, I just, I could have been so much more graceful in, in my transition and, and in the transition with my dad, but I was so attached to him being here and fixing him and wanting him to want to be here. And, you know, and of course that leads to hopelessness. I mean, you can't control other people, you know, you just, you can't. And I didn't know then what I know now, you know, I think that he would have had a much different outcome had I been able to, had I known then what I do know now. So. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in your book is, um, being, uh, removed from the present moment and, that's always been an issue for people, I think. And I hate to keep harping on technology, but it makes it harder. And that, and that I think you cited statistics that 50% of the time, people are literally detached from what they are doing at that time. And I, I recently interviewed uh, Richie Davidson from the University of Wisconsin, who started the Center for Healthy Minds. Fabulous guy. You, if you haven't read his work or know him, you, you would enjoy him. And he describes distraction as being toxic to the brain. And he does a lot of brain research and he's a neuroscientist. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And maybe are there ways you try to teach people, kids, adults, and otherwise to be more attached to the present moment? Is that part of being hopeful? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's, you know, that study was done by Harvard. I think it was 47% of the time people were either thinking about past or the future. And even if they were thinking about good things, positive things that they had a positive kind of affiliation with or association to, they were still less happy than they were if they were just in the present moment. And my guess would be that's much higher now, that we're out of the present moment much more. Um, so, yeah, and that's actually why I started my company. I mean, you know, it's about sensory engagement. And so one of the easiest and my other company, The Mood Factory which really helped fund the work that I'm doing now in Hope, but um, that it's engaging your senses is one of the easiest ways to get back engaged into the present moment. So, I mean, using the breath is a powerful modality, but smelling something or touching something or tasting something, savoring, you know, looking at something with like wonder and awe, super powerful way um, to get into the present moment. And so to me, that's my go-to Um you can listen to something, putting some music on. It can really help transform state. And yeah, I think it is toxic. I mean, when you have dinner with someone and they're checking their phones all the time, you can set, you can feel the energy, the angst and the energy, the the lack of just being, you know, and you can see how that adds. And, and with youth, I see it so much. There is such um, a need to be with the devices and, and, you know, addiction is toxic. So I, that makes complete and total sense. I hadn't thought about this before, but Catherine's observations about understanding and dealing with the differences between attachment and grief are very helpful. And there's a lot of interesting research and writing about the importance of maintaining and appreciating the sensory perception of the world around us not living only in virtual worlds on our devices. It's hard to do. Online content can be very compelling and addicting, but pulling away from our devices and connecting with the people and physical world around us is a very worthwhile effort. 
To kick off our final segment, I asked Catherine to talk about her early days and work building the Mood Factory. I started with the Mood Factory and I wanted, because I run this research, we're out of the present moment half the time. And if we could just be in the present moment, we'd be much happier. And so I was looking for ways to um, expand on my happiness. And so um, developed this product line and it was really, it's not, so they're called Mood Lights. So I was, I was basically looking at a space where there wasn't much innovation. And this was 20 years ago and the incandescent light bulb was all there was, the white one. So um, I thought, well, what if we added colors? And they started talking about paints and colors and moods. And, you know, it's not very scientific. A lot of the color researcher research is based on association. So we associate colors with things we see in nature. And so we kind of make that association in our mind. Um, so I developed a brand called Moonlights, and I studied with Leatrice Eisman, who's the director of the Pantone Institute, wrote a paper on colors and moods and created a brand. And yeah, eventually got them into Lowe's Home Improvement, redid their colored lighting set. We sold about $9 million and we did, um, I started a nonprofit when I started the company, but we did the first nationwide cause marketing campaign for mental health specifically. And um and that's when I got some real funding and said, I want to focus on the suicide prevention. And then, I mean, I'm so obsessed with hope and, you know, fascinated by hope and hopelessness. And like that work, we keep learning how to be more, more hopeless. And like, we need to be teaching how to be, you know, if you can, I believe if everyone knew really understood hopelessness and learned how to manage it proactively, we would end suicide. I really firmly I mean, I, I have suicidal ideations to this day, and it's really, I just have to constantly, oh, it's, I'm hopeless. I'm experiencing hopelessness about something. What's the hopelessness about? How do I manage my despair around it? How do I get out of my helplessness? What can I do? And so I use the framework constantly. And, you know, so far I'm still around, so that's good. Um but so I, you know, I kind of put my company to the side. I'll get back to it at some point. It's about multi, multi-sensor engagement because the more senses you engage to achieve a desired state, the more powerful. So if you engage, you know, your, if your, your sense of smell and put on music that are, that are aligned, you know, it's going to be more. And then you get taste involved. And, you know, there's a lot of research around sense and, and you can train yourself to mood states using the sense of smell. So I'll get a lot more into that when I get back to my company. So, but that's the mood factory. So it's on hold. And then the Shine Hope company is really taking the hope work we're doing to the adult population. And then so that we can continue to research, improve, um, teach adults, you know, how to, how to activate hope in their own lives and, and use it to help fund and support the work we're doing with kids around the world. So you just said around the world, which is I was going to ask you about your work with the United Nations, because some of these issues are uniquely bad in the United States. Some are not. Um, some of these are worldwide. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with the UN and what you've learned about this issue and, and trying to spread hope globally? Yeah, for sure. I mean, mental health disorders are, um, you know, they're different and then they're similar all around the world. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of human rights abuses that are occur. I mean, some a little bit still in the U.S., but in other countries for sure. And so, yeah, I got really, in, I mean, I wanted to have global impact. I love international. I love cultures. And so I've studied hope around the world specifically, and we've found it to be a pretty universal construct 
Um, I was able to present at the UN um, as part of a group called Fundamental SDGs and work to get mental health incorporated in, in the sustainable development goals. And then I got a role for the World Federation for Mental Health at the UN, so kind of a representative for them at the UN, representing the billion-plus people around the world with mental health disorders. So it is a big global challenge. Stigma is, you know, we invest very little in, in mental health, and, and so we need to up investments around it. I mean, my work is focused a lot around hope, um, being a protective factor for anxiety and depression and kind of a, or a unique way to address the stigma of mental health and in kind of positive, proactive way. I think a lot of anxiety and depression can be prevented um, with kind of proactive approaches to it. But yeah, I mean, I'm really passionate about the global work. We're working to get an international day of hope now. Hope is actually, you know, the research around hope is those higher in hope set more ambitious goals are more likely to achieve those goals, overcome obstacles on their way to goals. And when you think about the UN, you know, it's all about goals. It's all about sustainable development goals. So increasing our global, increasing everyone's hope around the world is going to impact our ability to and improve our likelihood of achieving those goals. So you know, we have the argument that hope is critical to all sustainable development goals and all the work that the UN wants to do. So we're working hard to try to make some progress. Oh, I love that. And no, in the SDGs has come up in other research I've done in interviews. They've been very motivational for people around the world, you know, to set these aggressive goals and to layer hope either in as a separate goal or over and above as sort of a, something that could support all of it seems to me to be a pretty powerful notion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. And we kind of we'll, we'll have our website launched in about a week and we go through each of the goals and some of the research around higher hope as as it relates to that specific goal. But, yeah, it, that's the idea. An International Day of Hope where we kind of celebrate the science of hope around the world. And we look at how hope impacts our ability to achieve all of those goals. I love that. And, and one other global topic I'd love to touch on with you is is climate change and the amount of just full-on despair that you see is particularly from young people or people in their 20s who are saying, I'm not going to have children because I, I'm not going to bring people in the world that's not going to be here in 30 years. How do you, has that been part of your work and how do you turn people from, okay, yes, it's a, it's a serious situation, but here are things that are working and here's how you can help and here's why, you know, your, your choice whether or not to have kids, but there's a very good chance we're going to make it more than 30 years if we do X, Y, and Z. Is that, is climate change come up in your work at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they call it eco-dread and it, it is one of the top concerns of youth and, and you know, a, among a lot of adults as well. And, you know, when you go into hopelessness around that, you do nothing. You kind of stay in bed and you don't, you know. So it's learning how to use our despair. And to me, our despair is actually a powerful force. So when you think about your sadness, when you think about your rage, when you think about your fear, it's really an indicator of what you care really deeply for, which is an amazing thing. Like if you care deeply about anything, that's, that's incredible. And that's generally a great indicator of why you're here on this planet. And so that's really the discussion with kids is tap into that despair and then use that 
to get from helplessness to action around that specific thing. So if you feel so deeply about climate, like don't not have kids around it, like work, use that as energy to solve the problem. Don't use it for addiction or for, you know, abusing yourself or other people. And, and that's like really unhealthy ways to use it. But innovate, great innovation happens when we kind of channel that energy and, and use it to drive change. I mean, amazing miracles happen all the time um, in science and in life when we kind of harness the power of that pain. So to me, it's a good thing they're in pain about it because that means we're just like on the other side of our solutions for it. That's great. And so if people are listening and they're responding to your message and they want to learn more, uh, in addition to your book, uh, The Biggest Little Book on Hope, where else should they be turning your, your website, those sorts? You said one's about to launch next week or so, but where should they go to learn more about your work? Yeah, the shinehopecompany.com is probably the best place because we've got a great, you know, all of our projects are on there. The nonprofit projects, Hopeful Cities, the work we're doing for the International Day of Hope, um, Hopeful Minds, which is the programming for youth. Uh, as well as what we're doing in workplaces and how to activate your college and, and all of that around it. So the shinehopecompany.com is really, got the best. you can find me on social media, on LinkedIn. <laughs> yes, you, I follow yeah. you. You are out there. So, so people, if they make any effort at all, uh, Catherine Getsky, they will find you. And I really appreciate your time. I'm a huge fan of the work you're doing. I think it's incredibly important. Your story is in particular is very inspiring and how you've channeled that pain into this work is is really something so thank you for all you're doing and thank you so much for your time today on the blue sky podcast oh thank you so much bill so great chatting with you Catherine Getsky's thoughts on the power of despair echo much of what we've heard from previous Blue Sky guests. Realizing that the world faces challenges and simultaneously understanding that there's something we all can do about them is to me what true optimism is all about. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation with Catherine Getsky, and if you did, you might want to consider subscribing to this podcast and, of course, following the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>